Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 49, The Scholar Practitioner, Joining Theory and Practice. In this episode, we speak with Scholar Practitioner and Shambhala Acharya, Judith Simmer-Brown, on the importance of joining together theoretical study and meditation practice. This is part one of a two-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To learn more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive your free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit donoharm.us. I'm sitting here today with Professor Judith Simmer-Brown, and she is an Acharya in the Shambhala tradition. And she's also a student of Chögyam Trungpa, and I think also you were a student of Suzuki Roshi originally, right? Yes. Yeah. And she teaches at Naropa University, both graduate studies and undergraduate in the religious studies department. And I actually had the great fortune of taking a class with her my last semester at school there. And it was a fantastic class. And she was one of the first people I really wanted to interview for this program, but I'd left Boulder. So I'm just now having the opportunity and her schedule is just now cleared up enough that we can sit down and have this conversation. Thank so, you, Vince. Yes. Yeah, so, so thanks for coming. And yes, I've been looking forward to talking to you for, for a while. Yeah. Great. So a couple questions that I thought we could delve into have to do with things that we talked about in the class that you taught. And one of the most interesting things, because it was a scholarly class in some ways, is what does it mean to be both a scholar and also a deep practitioner in the Buddhist tradition? And the first time I'd really been introduced to this concept was in a magazine called Buddha Dharma. Uh, yes. Uh, I think it was last year. And Charles Prebish, a professor, I think at University of Virginia. Yes. He's left there now and he's teaching in Utah. He has a new seat in uh, Buddhist studies in Logan, that's, Utah. That's right. I actually remember seeing that online yes. now that you said it. He wrote an article about the scholar practitioner movement and how many of the Buddhist teachers in America that are professors are also interested in practice, in some cases, like yourself, are actually authorized teachers in some of those lineages, so that the the usual separation in academia between studying the subject from the outside and actually studying it from the inside doesn't have as much relevance for those people, uh, which is, is kind of an interesting thing. So I was yes. wondering, one, because I don't know much about the historical precedents for that, where did that movement come from in the Buddhist tradition? Is it been a pretty long-standing thing? I think that there are two points of view that would be good to talk about. One is what's going on in Asia and the development of Buddhism in Asia. And it was much more common in Asian settings for people to be practitioners mm. and deeply study texts and Buddhist theology, I guess you could say, uh, particularly in monastic contexts and monastic colleges. So it's very common that in Buddhist traditions in Asia that scholar practitioners were very much the leaders, the mentors, the Dharma teachers in many Asian settings. Mm. And I think that's really been more the model. I think the notion of practicing without studying has been more a lay model that has developed in a more contemporary way mm. in Asia and, of course, in Western Buddhism itself. And then when we look in the uh, American and European context, there's been a whole question that for a long, long time, as liberal arts education developed, it developed out of 
church-based colleges and universities, and there was a sense of inculcating some kind of uh, religious tradition, a specific religious tradition that meant there was always an obvious bias going on. Mm -hmm. There was a whole reaction to that in the 20th century that meant that religious studies was not an academic discipline. It was a kind of missionizing, proselytizing approach Mm. that was really used in a lot of colleges and universities. And in the 1960s, there developed a movement to really develop religious studies as an academic discipline Mm. where proselytizing was not the main point. And religious studies worked very hard to become a good academic discipline Mm. without a lot of bias and proselytizing going on. And it became so strongly uh, this kind of academic discipline. It got to the point that certainly when I was in graduate school in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a sense that if you were going to be a religious studies professor, you would never let on to students that you had any religious life of your own. Mm. The whole idea was that you would keep a kind of objective point of view and that you would keep your own religious convictions and practices completely secret. And uh, many people feel that religious studies became hyper-objective during that time. There's a real change in that environment in religious studies in the last five years. It may take a long time for it to develop, where there is an interest in religious practice that's separate from proselytizing, where there's an interest in what uh, spiritual practice looks like in many religious traditions, Mm -hmm. and an understanding that even objectivity is biased in a particular way. Uh, Objectivity uh, brackets out and and pretends to be unbiased, but it's biased very much toward rationality and toward um, pretending that there's no bias at all on the part of the observer. And so there's some new movements in religious studies saying that it might be a really healthy and positive thing for religious studies faculty to foster conversations about spirituality with their students, Mm. but in such a way that one makes very clear what one's particular bias might be and uh, refrains from uh, laying that on the students in an unnamed way, the way that it was once done. Mm. And contemplative education and contemplative pedagogy in the classroom is a way that's really growing in religious studies as a way to really begin to look at spiritual practice not with a kind of heavy-duty doctrinal content, Mm. but more particularly bringing in practice when it's relevant to the ideas being discussed in class, and that pedagogically it makes a lot of sense. It would be really bizarre to me to study Buddhism without some kind of grounding in meditation practice, because meditation practice and Buddhist teachings are so intimately connected. So one of the things that brought me to Naropa University was a true conviction that to pretend to be purely objective as a religious studies professor is a sort of fake position. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's better to be really clear about what you're doing when you're talking about meditation and such things. And that, that there are also times when it's inappropriate to be doing that kind of thing at all. But that the way people really understand a spiritual tradition is to see it within the context of its practice. And at Naropa, that's what we try to do in all of our courses. When our faculty members teach Hinduism, we try to have them taught by scholar practitioners who introduce the the practice and the teachings together. Mm -hmm. Same for Judaism, same for Christianity, same for all the major spiritual traditions, Islam, East Asian religions, Mm -hmm. and such. It's controversial, 
But it is these days, compared to 30 years ago when I went to Naropa, when it was extremely controversial, I think more and more religious studies professors are beginning to recognize that it's extremely important to include some kind of living practice tradition Mm. in what we're doing in the classroom. And pedagogically, I'm not sure how I could teach um, esoteric subjects of the Abhidharma without teaching meditation practice along with it. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a class at a public university before I transferred in Europa and I took an introduction to Buddhist religion class. And the teacher, while he'd spent a lot of time in Asia and he was familiar with uh, Chinese and Mandarin, he'd done some translation work. He had never practiced meditation. And I found it extremely bizarre having practiced for a few years at that point that we were talking about emptiness and jhana states and all of these different esoteric subjects. And he had acknowledged that he had no experience in those domains. And I just, I found that so strange. And it's true. I mean, when I was in graduate school in South Asian religion and I began to take my first courses in Buddhism, Buddhism was deadly dull and scholastic and I was so put off. And then once I began practicing meditation And then I looked at those very same subjects. They were completely alive. The most esoteric subjects in Buddhism were completely alive from the point of view of having a little meditation under my belt. And certainly the classroom at Naropa University is very different Mm -hmm. from the classroom in a conventional university. My very first teaching job was a conventional university classroom where you couldn't get students interested in what was going on because it didn't relate to their own experience or their own lives. Mm -hmm. But boy, the moment you begin some meditation, it's a completely different thing to talk about uh, extreme states of mind and about painful experiences in one's life because there's much more intimate knowledge of that once we sit still and, and let our minds actually open up to what our actual experience is. Yeah, I remember... And taking your class, we did several guided meditations in the class yes. and then actually talked about the subject from the more scholarly perspective. And it made so much more sense having actually done some of those practices and, and seeing how they're relevant when they're talked about in, the, in a more abstract way when, yes. with all these interesting models and these kind of strange graphs <laughs> that you handed out to us. And if I had used those interesting models and strange graphs without some practice experience, People would have considered me some kind of complete scholarly oddball, you know. Right, right. But uh, it's funny that when you understand how to actually use this in your life, and your practice, it becomes very alive and very different. Yeah, and that, that kind of transitions into my next question, which was about how, how scholarly practice or study actually impacts the meditation side and how meditation then impacts the scholarly side. And how do those things synergize and support one another? And how, you, how do you see that? It's interesting. My uh, root teacher, Chogyam Trumpa used to say that if we only practice meditation, then we become stupid meditators. And if we only study, we become arrogant scholars. And in my own experience, having taught at Naropa for 30 years, and I've also been a Dharma teacher in the Shambhala community and outside the Shambhala community as well, what I've really learned is that at Naropa, when people practice, it brings the the study that we do alive. And then in the Shambhala community, my role is to introduce study of texts to longtime meditators. And what I have learned in, um, this has been probably 25 years of teaching 
a body of, of text to advanced meditators, what they find is, oh my goodness, now I have some idea what, why I'm actually practicing. And rather than just sort of sitting and killing time on a cushion and, you know, mindlessly following some kind of meditation technique, if you don't actually have some kind of wisdom dawning in your experience, then there's a sense of really wasting time. But when you bring some kind of uh, light into the practice about what actually is going on and what we're doing when we practice, why are we meditating and what what is the process and what kind of uh, transformation and journey takes place, the thing that I hear over and over again from my longtime practitioner students is they become completely re-energized, re-inspired in their practice. And many of them have found that study then becomes an extremely important ongoing part of meditation practice. And so I, I have, uh, you know, I started out as a Zen student. As a Zen student, I had a double life. I had my Zen practitioner life, and then I had my scholarly life. And when I was in graduate seminars, uh, my fellow students would take me aside and say, I hear that you've been practicing meditation. You know, who have you been practicing with? <laughs> and then I would go to Zen Center and I'd be doing sashins and sitting for long times. And we would be out hoeing lettuce in the lettuce fields at Green Gulch. And the person with the next hoe would come up to close to me and say, have you read the Lankavatara Sutra? You know, I found that there was this covert side of Zen practice of people dying to actually read something, even though we weren't allowed to read. Mm -hmm. And in the graduate school classroom, people dying to practice some meditation, but we weren't allowed to ever discuss it. Mm -hmm. And my attraction to Naropa University, then Naropa Institute in 1974, and to meeting Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, he was the only teacher around at that time who emphasized both practice and study. Mm. So I was a professor with this closet practice life and a practitioner with a closet scholar life. And I came to Naropa and the partition between the two was ripped out uh-huh. by Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. And it had such an incredibly energizing effect on me that there was no way I could leave. I think that there's something extremely potent because I do teach at Zen centers sometimes now. And I find such a hunger from the Zen centers to have some more understanding of the view. And then, you know, from the scholarly world, when I go to academic conferences of wanting to know more about the practice, that I think that we really discover a kind of wholeness when Mm. we join the two together. Mm. That's great. And so it's so neat that when you came to Naropa, you didn't have to to kind of lead those double lives anymore. It was exhilarating. I was so excited. I was here for a five-week session, and I was so excited for those five weeks. I could not sleep. It was like having these two secret lives, you know, brought together and into my two public lives, and it was just one life. And the prospect of teaching at Naropa was so intimidating, but also really exciting to me that when I was invited back to teach a couple of years later, it was just a phenomenal thing to be able to be part from the ground up of a university that was joining theory and practice in that way. That's the way it was done in Asia. It's just in America where we had separated the two so completely. Mm, Interesting. So for those people 
who've done more of the practice side and really haven't done a, a lot of study, do you have any resources or books that you recommend to people that are starting to get interested in that sort of thing? Well, one thing is that we see that uh, when I first got into Buddhist studies, I could easily buy every book that was out every year. But we see the proliferation of books, that there's an enormous amount to read. I think I can't recommend one or two books because it's huge. I think that the best thing that we can do is look for the classic sources. Mm. I do think there's benefit in reading contemporary teachers, but there's an awful lot going on with contemporary teachers that could be misconstrued if we do not know something about the history of Buddhism. Mm. And I do think that there's a great deal that can be learned from going back to Indian, uh, Central Asian, Southeast Asian, East Asian history Mm and to discover some of the classic fonts of the tradition that we practice. So if you're a Vipassana student, then go back to the Theravada tradition and read Buddha Gosa especially, because he was really the one who brought the the whole view of the Vipassana practice into perspective. If you are practicing in the East Asian tradition, if you're in the Zen tradition, then go back to Dogen Zenji, go back to the Rinzai masters and really learn something, you know, the Blue Cliff records and things like that. Mm. If you're in the Tibetan tradition, there are endless possibilities for study, but find about who who in your lineage are you studying meditation with? Make sure that you study the lineage of that teacher. And again, I think we all benefit going back to the Indian tradition because all of it is traced back to that. Mm. We find... I'm a great believer in sutra study, Mm -hmm. and I think the sutras um, have been incredible uh, wellsprings of wisdom for Buddhist practitioners. So, you know, at your Dharma Center, there might be ways you could take courses. There are other places besides Naropa University, but we're the oldest. There are now three fully accredited Buddhist universities in America, and you could go there and study University of the West and Soka University have recently become accredited in the last couple of years. Mm. Naropa has been accredited since 1986. That's what we do. There are lots more opportunities that will emerge. But the main thing is focusing enough so that you can go deep rather than just trying to read every book that's out there. A lot of popular books don't give you really much sense of the roots or the lineage of what it is you're practicing. Yeah, I remember reading... Uh, bits out of the Vasudhimaga and the Abhidharma Kosha in your class. And it was both amazing and very intense reading. Very intense reading. Yeah. And with texts like that, you need uh, a guide. Mm. You need a structure. And there are some excellent, particularly for the Visuddhimagga, uh, Swallowing the River Ganges is a wonderful commentary in the Visuddhimagga for the Vipassana practitioner that makes it more accessible. So when you find a classic source like that, if it's impossible Mm -hmm. to read directly, there are some more contemporary translations that help you do that. So, Mm. And finding living teachers who teach that kind of thing. Mm I think that that it is endlessly rewarding to do something like that. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. 
This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.